0: This is a special episode of Effing Shakespeare, recorded in collaboration with the 2021 AWP Conference and Book Fair. We're thankful to be the official podcast for AWP for a second year and have invited a gallery of guests that you don't want to miss out on. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to bring you interviews of amazing writers sharing about their amazing work. Enjoy.
1: I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers for writers. Allison Deming is so prolific and has been writing so long, it's a bit overwhelming to pack into a twenty minute interview. But I'm so grateful to speak to someone. I've been hearing about and reading since I was a master's student in Creative Writing Poetry Program at UC Davis. I took classes there in the Nature and Culture Program, which sounds similar to the Field Studies and Writing Program that Allison founded in 2015 at the University of Arizona, where she is currently Regents Professor she has an MFA from Vermont College, a Stagner fellowships from the NEA, just a bunch of residencies and prizes, and I'll try not to fangirl too much. Welcome so much. <laughs> so happy that you're here.
2: Thank you so much,
1: Jessica. Your new book, which is coming out in August, is called an amazing title, like all of your books have amazing titles. A Woven World on Fashion, fishermen, and the Sardine Dress. Can you tell us a little
2: bit about it and what we can look forward to and maybe read us a bit? I would be delighted. Thanks so much for having me. So this book came about because I was interested in two things. One, writing about my grandmother and great-grandmother, who with my great-grandmother was a dressmaker in Paris for empress Eugenie in the second empire left paris for reasons we don't know and came to new york and set up a dressmaking business that she and her daughter ran so these were artistic women entrepreneurial women and there's no record of their lives or the businesses and i wanted to to know them as best i could and at the same time as i was thinking about writing about them i was thinking about the fishery on the little island where I've gone since I was a child off the coast of eastern Canada, and these beautiful herring wares that they build to catch fish right off the shoreline and inshore fishery. And I started thinking, wow, these are both these beautiful small cultures that are being beaten out of the world by corporate and capitalistic, you know, bulldozers, so to speak. I really want to honor them and learn what I can about them. And so it's a It's a book about dressmakers and fishermen, and there's a lot of dresses in this book, too. It's a braided book. I think it's going to be fun for people to read, because it's got a braid. One braid is about family story. One braid is about um, the fishermen, and the other braid is dresses I had through my childhood and growing up.
1: That's amazing. (laughs) I think some, I've seen some fishing nets that that are incredibly ornate and seem like they could be part of. A dress or fashion or something well alexander fishnets, McQueen. of
2: course yeah. there are fishnet stockings which have been around since ancient egypt as far as my research tells me and are mm-hmm. still kicking it in the roller derby and in the grunge world so oh,
1: egypt. oh my gosh perfumery and and fishnet stockings. that's incredible you have been connecting poetry and science for a long time, which is one of my favorite, the, my two favorite things, and especially Connected, my favorite thing. I am curious about what, what sparked that, and also I would be interested in, in hearing about the, the field program that you developed mm-hmm. at U of A.
2: I think it really the interest in science started in my childhood I'm not trained as a scientist but I grew up in a in a New England family where we had lots of books and we also did a lot of work in the yard with gardens and and building stone walls and going up into the woods and transplanting wild plants to plant around the house and but my books were of course children's story books like Stuart Little and Pinocchio and the Wizard of Oz but I also had a lot of little natural history books like very pocket Size guides to trees guide to wildflowers Mm. and a children's encyclopedia of natural history which i think i got on a childhood visit to the museum of natural history in new york which blew my mind of course the dinosaur skeletons as a child knows it's just like mind-blowing so you know i just grew up knowing that books take you out into the larger world either through stories and literature or through science and and I didn't, as a child, have the division that there's science and there's art. It was one mm-hmm. thing. And I somehow managed not to ever let that split go. And and it's, it's just stayed with me, because science is, I just find it such a turn on. I find it so interesting. Scientists look with such precision at the world. It seems a beautiful complement to art. And at this point, the way science has been denigrated and censored and suppressed, I think art can have sciences back as well, and that we can do something to celebrate what science can give us in terms of knowledge and wonder and attention, you know, to the world that's being wounded so badly. Such an amazing thing to say. Yeah, the arts can have the sciences back now. (laughs) You had another question in the middle of that double question. Now I don't remember what Oh, sorry, no,
1: just in terms of how how you developed that, the program,
2: the the, oh, yeah. the writing program. As as you know, in creative writing programs, there's never any money for anything as there is in some of the sexier fields. I got yeah. appointed out of the blue uh, as an endowed chair. Uh, and it was an endowed chair in environment and social justice. And with it came a modest amount of money. And I said, well, what can I do with it? And they said, you can do anything you want. You can do a reading series. And I said, yeah, another reading series. Okay. And I said, I jokingly said, If I could do anything, I would take graduate students up to this fishing island in Eastern Canada and have them do immersion research and writing about how literature can contribute to understanding climate change and environmental and social justice issues. And I thought they'd just laugh and say, are you kidding me? And they said, yeah, do it. So I did it. (laughs) And then they liked it so much that they said, well, we'd like you to develop another program in the Southwest and we'll give you a little money to do that. So we 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 the program up in the Canadian Maritimes is over. We ran it for 5 years. And now we have one that runs on the in the borderlands of Arizona so that those students spent two weeks in immersion doing research and working with some marginalized youth who are doing ecological restoration on the land, and also going to some of the humanitarian organizations that are doing things like putting water stations out for the migrants, mm-hmm. you know, to help them survive in, on their journey. And, and so then they, you know, write about their experience of being down there. So, we're turning their attention and their skills to being bearers of witness of, of what's happening on our uh, weaponized border. And so it's been a, a great program. We're always, you know, scraping for money to keep it going. But it's been really inspiring and, and, and we love it. And I hope other programs will start doing things like this. That's- I mean, Hopefully, with
1: the current administration, we'll get some more funding back into our arts programs.
2: Yes. Possibly. And education. Education and science. And, and science, and, I know. Yeah. yeah, there's a chance. I mean, we're certainly in a much better um, situation than we were. And any also for more humanitarian um, policies about the border, I'm hoping, and pathway to citizenship, et cetera. So, yeah. yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, that... Your your ability early on struck me, um, and I, I feel like that you were in a you know a cohort of writers I was reading in the '90s because that's when I was coming of age and um, starting my becoming a writer journey in a more you know academic and uh, formalized way. But for me, it was the women who were who were doing work of Patty Ann Rogers and and yeah.
2: Barrett. Oh yeah, Barrett. She's she's from my hometown, which I brag about. Oh, I love I loved her so much. (laughs) Also, I really recommend now Kathleen Jamie, the Scottish writer, who's both a poet and a and a nonfiction writer. She is brilliant. I love her, Kathleen. I was going to ask you who who else you recommend. And of course, Rebecca Stallnut, who's a you know a little bit more journalistic, but also brilliant, amazing. Uh, And Pam Houston, who you may have worked with up there. Did did.
1: mention her? Yes. Oh my god.
2: Thrilling, thrilling, yeah. Riddle Ehrlich, I mean, and and now, you know, we're starting to see some writers of color come into the genre, Laurette mm-hmm. Savoy and her wonderful book, Trace. And my my former student Francisco Cantu, who wrote the line "becomes a river" about the border. So um, oh, I, know, I know that title. Okay. Yeah, it's a great yeah, book. A great a former book. student. Oh, neat. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we're seeing diversification finally coming into the environmental writing. which is it's been slower in this genre than, you know, in poetry and fiction, but it's happening. I think now. Yeah. So Drew, Land. I was
1: wondering because I I, I realized it could be sort of an artificial view of things because it was just when I was becoming more sentient about everything that I felt like all these writers were available to me but was there I mean from what you just said I'm guessing not but it seemed to me at the time that that was the poetry plus science or creative writing plus science nature slash ecology environmental restoration was a space that women could could carve out a place Mm -hmm. for themselves in the 90s to is that but yours Is that true um
2: i I think there there were a lot of women you know because uh, of their particular interests and, and empathy for the natural world you know which is deep and long in time as part of it and I think it was an easier opportunity for women than it was for writers of color because what was considered nature writing wasn't considered, you know, issues of um, environmental justice, issues of uh, you know who's suffering the most from climate change, you know, disadvantaged communities of color. Hello, so no longer could we separate the issues of conservation and and environmental sustainability from environmental justice. So I think you know rethinking what is nature writing to be more capacious in opening up to these concerns that we feel so keenly now has begun to open it up to writers of color as well. Or they've just, I mean, it hasn't opened and they have you know, helped to redefine what it can be. So it's Mm. really cool.
1: And again, I feel like you are one of the, I mean, again, I could be missing a whole bunch of people. You are one of the early at least women that I was reading, and I think writers at all who were linking um, mm-hmm. environmental justice and talking, you know, Carolyn Forche um, linking, yeah. linking the political with with the personal through the through landscape.
2: Yeah. Uh, now, totally now it's kind of ubiquitous. But when I was yeah. starting to do this, I I kind of had the feeling people were sort of looking like you know.
1: <laughs> I mean, I really want to ask you about that. I mean, your your early chat books of you know, The Girls in the J- Jungle, What is it t- <laughs> to Survive in the Arts, which is an amazing title and unfortunately still relevant. And your collaboration with your daughter. Yes. Named. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, yes. Both the daughter in the book, which is uh, Anatomy of Desire, Mother-Daughter Sessions. So with that, yeah is was that coming out of trying to carve out that space of specifically writing about place and writing about the environment or was it simply was it more broad and about being a, a woman artist in the world in general
2: the, the project with my
1: daughter you mean or... yes
2: and and the and jungle
1: Girls in the
2: Jungle. Well, those books came out. Well, Girls in the Jungle. The, we had an exhibition in Tucson in whatever year that was, 1991, I guess, where there was an exhibition of work by the Guerrilla Girls. You know, this subversive group that were was trying to hold exhibition uh, and curators accountable for their lack of representation of women, and uh, so they came out to to do this exhibition, and I was invited to give a little talk, and so I just. You know it was one of those things I had no time. I was really busy, and I just I wrote this list uh, and and we had a small feminist press, Corey Press, that was just starting up in Tucson, and they were looking for their first project and they were there and they said, we want this, we want to publish it and so and so that was their first publication and uh, so so that was really exciting. but I certainly had felt it's easy for women to take the dismissals and the ridicule and the harassment, whatever's going to come their way, to turn them away from their own ambition. It's easy to be shut down by that. And I wanted to write something that said, listen, man, if, if you want this, here's, here are some tips from me that may help you keep it going. You cannot use that stuff to silence you. You have to use it to energize yourself sort of in resistance to all the BS that comes your way you know and so that's where that one came from the the one with my daughter was I can't remember how we decided to do it she actually she I think she was in an MFA program she's a visual artist she mm-hmm. said mom we should do something about desire because As a young woman, I had worked for Planned Parenthood for a decade and I had done a lot of sex education. And so I I was not at all squeamish about talking about sexuality with my daughter. And I, you know, I came of age in the 60s, so I also had a fairly... time, shall we say, in those days. (laughs) So um, thankfully, pre-AIDS and everything, it was great. However, and, but we, you know, we talked quite openly about sexuality and and people are always saying, you and your daughter can talk about this stuff. And we said, yeah, well, I can't talk to my mother about anything everyone would say. And so we said, all right, let's write something in which we push each other to find the edges of our discomfort, because there is the inherent, maternal drive to protect your daughter, where you don't want her to make some of the stupid choices that I may have made, you know, as a young woman, you don't want her to be victimized. On the other hand, you want her to have, you know, to embrace her sexuality and enjoy it and find pleasure in it. And it's a very hard place to be as a mother, you know, where do you exert the control without putting her under surveillance or just suppressing her and making her feel policed about her own sexuality. So we wanted to tease out, those tensions and limits and 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 push it to places where we were like "Ooh, i don't want to hear that and <laughs> so that's kind of what we did in that project it's oh, like right okay. so yeah
1: cool. i have a son kate has a son and two daughters so i i have a different set of challenges
2: you do you do i
1: do I don't um, want to run out of time, so I want to make sure we get to your reading. Can we hear Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so oh my I gosh. Read,
2: I can read you a couple of pages from the prologue to A Woven World, okay? Wonderful, thank Yay. you. And, and this is the, the oh, galley, but it's a beautiful design. I'm so oh, thrilled with the counterpoint for that you published it. Um, counterpoint. counterpoint press. Counterpoint. Okay, so this is uh, from the prologue, and the prologue is titled The Unmaking. The kitchen wing of our 1864 Castalia cottage had been slumping down into the earth for decades. Sill beams laid on bare soil had crumbled making the walls sink. The shelves that held our dishes and glassware had tilted wallward. The floor enlisted and rippled like a fun house. A gap had grown between the kitchen wing and the main house inviting rain, mice, and fearsomely huge black ants to run rampant each in their season. After my parents were gone, stewardship of the summer place became the price I paid for spending a few months each year in the Canadian Maritimes. The house, on the other hand, spent the whole year on the stormy seashore of the Long Bank, battered by wind and rain and snow and ice, saturated with fog and salt air, invaded by mold and mildew. The roof shingles were busting up from where the old brick chimney sieved creosote into rainwater and snowmelt, making gruesome watercolor abstractions on the ceilings. And while the old fieldstone cellar walls held generally upright, one corner had caved to external forces. The house was unmaking itself. Mm. Half of my neighbors told me to finish the job and tear the whole thing down. 150 years is long enough, they said. The other half said... How could you tear that house down? It's been here 150 years. (laughs) Who built that house, anyone, they asked. Then the stories began, a fisherman grew up here who was lost at sea for a week in his dory and the crusty quips relegating me to outsider status. Though our family had owned the place since 1957, you're living in my grandfather's house. (laughs) The more I learned about the place, the more I imagined the lives that had gone before me and came to feel somehow that I was their keeper. I knew the house would not go down on my watch, at least not the whole of it. Had the kitchen wing torn down and hired Larry Small to reno what remained, new windows and doors, gut out plaster, insulate, new pine tongue and groove boards for the walls, no kitchen, no bathroom, a camp sink. It will become an art studio for my daughter who plans to keep our family story moving forward in this place. Demolition has its pleasures. In two hours, a backhoe and dump truck can turn a house into a vacant lot. A few bites through the roof, a few scoops of lath and plaster, smashed windows and linoleum, and the wing was smooth to bare dirt and open space on the land as it had been before the cottage was built. The demolition was catharsis. All those years of dithering about what to do with the ruin, all those years of family argument and avoidance and lack of resources, financial and emotional, gone with the dump truck, rumbling down the road. Maybe there were ghosts from the family before us who felt the relief as well. I don't really believe in ghosts as apparitions of the dead, but our dead do live with us as specters in the mind. What do they ask of us? It seems at the very least they ask for stories that will hold them among the living. This is no less true for our ecological losses than for our familial ones mm. oh thank you so much
1: such
2: a pleasure i'm so excited for it oh i i'm so excited that you're excited I, i'm really thrilled to have this book come out and what's in, the pub you know, date august it, it august. may be it's, it's available for pre-order now at counterpoint okay. and usual places but the actual pub date is in august so
1: well, best of luck with the book and with the new puppy. Yes. <laughs> now I see why you named
2: Coco Coco. Yes. Thanks to your, your ancestor. Coco Chanel shows up in the book a couple of times. Uh-huh. So <laughs> that was my puppy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so great. Thank you so much, Allison. Such Thank a you,
2: fun. Jessica. What a yeah. pleasure.
0: Thank you so much. Have a fun, everybody.
1: Thanks. Bye. Thanks, yeah. you too.
0: This has been a live recording of the Effing Shakespeare podcast by Bloomsday Literary at the 2021 AWP Conference and Book Fair. Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space, hosted by Kate Martin-Williams and Jessica Cole, and produced by me, Fulhu. Our trusty and hardworking intern is Sanviti Sadaf. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever podcasts are found.
1: Boo, you sound like a dad. Our our producer dad. Yeah. All right. Throwing us in line. Yeah. Thank God for Boo. We're the puppies in this situation. We're all the puppies.
0: (laughs) All right. We could start.